Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. Today, I have a very special guest, Kelly Minkin. She is a professional poker player with over $1.5 million in live tournament earnings. She's had two super deep runs in the World Series of Poker main event in 2015 for over 200K um, when she came 29th. That year, she also was the GPI Female Player of the Year. And then a few years later in 2018, where she placed 50th for over 150K, and she was the last woman standing in both events. She's also a partner at the Verse Standing Law Firm, which specializes in gaming and poker-related law. And today she's going to bring an intense hand from her 2018 main event run with King 8 Offsuit, a hand that really inspired me when I first heard about it. So... She is on Twitter at The Illist, and there she wrote, don't be the best, be the only. And welcome to the show to the one and only Kelly Minkin. Hey, Jen. Thanks for uh, the lovely introduction. It's nice to be on the grid finally. Yeah, thanks so much. And this hand, King 8 Offsuit, came from your second super deep round in the main, right? Yeah, um, it was actually on a feature table, and I felt a lot more comfortable than I did in 2015 since I had been in that position before. Um, and I had obviously spent a lot more time playing tournaments. So I felt like I was more equipped to handle the high pressure situation. So in 2015, on day one dinner break, I was down to 10 big blinds. So I kind of went into it like expecting to not make it very far. And then I just had a run and I continued that momentum up until day six. So, you know, it was really nice. I didn't face a ton of adversity. I was short stacked fairly often. And then, you know, when I got it in, I had a hand. So it makes it a lot easier when, you know, you don't have to navigate the field with creating bluffs. And at the end, I just got unlucky and I was in an unfortunate situation to bust. But I definitely wasn't mentally prepared to play a tournament with such significance for that long of time. You know, it was, it was a lot for me. So in 2018, when I made a similar deep run, I was like, okay, I'm I'm ready to do this. What do you think it would be most surprising to people about making a deep run in the main event? Like what is weird about it that people wouldn't expect? I think the biggest thing for me being, you know, well-versed in high stakes tournament poker You know, I play a lot of WPTs where, you know, as the field gets narrow and you're in the money, it's everyone is exceptional um, for the most part. And 
in the main event at the World Series, it's just a totally different ball game because you have all walks of life playing the tournament from amateurs to, you know, the best online players in the world to the best live players to novices. So it's takes a lot more creativity to play in the main event, I believe, because, you know, there's so many different types of players. And so you kind of have to play each hand as it presents itself and, you know, consider the person you're playing against. And I feel like a lot of people that are successful in other tournaments that don't see success in the main event kind of fail to either recognize that or adjust to that fact. We're going to get more into your style of poker and your adjustments and exploitations, but let's let's get into this exact hand because you had King 8 offsuit on the button and you had been deets back a lot of this tournament. I think I was watching um, you on the feature table, but you must have had just like a tough run before this because you came into this hand at like 17 big blinds. You know, I said that as you get into the money in most tournaments, it becomes extremely difficult. And that kind of seems to be the case more so when you get well into the money in the main event you know like a lot more of the players become extremely talented and so the adjustments you make you know when you first enter the money as opposed to the adjustments you make with five percent of the field left is a big discrepancy there um so i had a little bit of a difficult time adjusting to some of the players deeper in 2018 Um, There were a lot of European players that I felt were exploiting me. And so I wanted to adjust knowing as I was learning these players that I had no information on before, kind of adjusting to their style of play based on what I felt they knew about me or they didn't know about me. How were they trying to exploit you? I felt there was just a lot of aggression that was put on me. Um, putting me in difficult spots. I remember I had watched the hand back and one of the European players I had opened under the gun with like either King Queen off or maybe King Jack suited. And he was like in early position, maybe one or two to my left. And he had three bet me with ace four off. And so then I had seen that on the replay, maybe on like a break or something. I'm like, okay, this isn't something I would have predicted someone would do. But now I can kind of, if I put myself in his shoes and think, okay, this is a girl. She's not as experienced as me that he may know I don't play online. So I think he felt like he could exploit me in that position, which never, I never really considered someone doing that. So once I had that information as I was, you know, getting the play-by-plays from friends and you know, watching the um, delayed stream that I had to make those adjustments, I felt like in order to advance in the tournament. And then in this hand, you had the King eight offsuit, and you opened in the button. Um, was was that at all a decision point for you? I guess you had like something like seven, you had about a, a million with 60k big blind. Um, yeah, so I know that in prior spots, I guess, without being in the main event, You may have played this hand differently, but again, like there's so many other factors that come into play. I felt like King 8 was a strong enough hand to open off of, you know, 17, 18 blinds. And, you know, I just felt like I could make decisions on the fly as I saw how the hand played out post-flop. If I got three bet pre-flop, I think it's an easy fold, but you never know. You know, like I try to let myself have an open mind and 
open perspective on how I'm going to play hands and not like pigeonhole myself into a decision before the action takes place. I feel like that's, that's not how I play poker. And I don't think that's, it just isn't a way that I want to play. Um, I like to have an idea of what I want to do, but then I'm always willing to adjust if I'm given more information as the hand progresses. That's great. It's really difficult for some people to do that because once you study, um, you know, different charts and try to commit them to memory, then um, of course, like great players can deviate from it. Maybe not as much as they should sometimes. And, and you know, that kind of ties into what you were saying about the main event being such a good event for you. Exactly. And I feel like, you know, that kind of goes back to when I discussed the WPTs. When you're playing with people who all have the same information and you know they have that information, it's a lot easier to say, okay, I've studied the charts. I know my opponents know these spots, so I can adjust accordingly. But when you're playing against opponents, you don't know if they know that information or you're playing against an opponent, you don't know if they know you know that information, then you have to adjust. Because you're only playing the charts based on the understanding or the assumption that the other opponent knows that exact information. So in this situation, you played King A off and your plan was to, to raise and, and fold to a jam if that were to happen. But your opponent in the big blind just called, right? Yeah. And when he just called, I felt like his range was fairly wide there. I don't think he's really folding the big blind with much. So it didn't give me much information. I think I could narrow his range a little bit unless he was trapping with an extremely strong hand. I thought that was possible, but I was kind of like, okay, let's see what he does on the flop. And this guy, had you had a lot of history with him prior in the uh, feature table? He definitely knew what he was doing. I didn't have much information outside of the short time we had played together, but I was kind of studying his body language, his eyes. He gave off more information than some opponents do. So I didn't know how to interpret every like move or, you know, micro expression that he had, but I tried to pay attention and listen to my instincts on like what all of those things meant as a whole. And did you get any instincts or clues by the way that he called preflop? But I have heard this saying that people tend to be less protective of their cards early in the hand. So sometimes you can get more preflop than you can postflop. Would you agree with that? And did you get anything here? I think generally, yes, but it's all dependent on the specific person you're playing against. In this situation, I didn't get much information. So I didn't, going into it, I wasn't like, he's super weak, he's extremely strong. I just wanted to gather more information as the hand um, progressed. Cool. And so the flop came, ace, queen of hearts with a three, right? Yeah. And so when the flop came down, I was extremely comfortable you know see betting that flop um I didn't think it hit much of his range unless you know he could have ace three maybe hearts you know that hands that would continue maybe a queen but I figured I'd throw a bet out there and see how he reacted to it he checked I see bet, and when I see bet, I noticed a lot of change in his body language um his eyes like I could almost see what he was thinking in a weird way that he felt like it was a good opportunity to exploit. Um, that's the impression I got based on his body language. When he bet, he had like a slight hesitation when he put the chips out um, to raise. And I kind of caught, you know, 
with everything together between his eyes, his facial expression, his hesitation when he put the bed out. In that moment, I felt like I could exploit his exploit. And I know that a lot of people, when they saw this hand, thought it was a bluff. But I genuinely just thought he didn't have anything. From the action that took place, I felt like given my stack size, he wouldn't raise me there if his hand was strong like ace three. And the only hand I think he could reasonably do that with was like some type of combo draw. And those combo draws, I think he would have put me all in pre-flop. So given like all this analysis in a short period of time, you know, obviously it's risky, it's deep in the main event, um, but I've always allowed myself to go with my instincts, even in these like high equity spots where, you know, it could be disastrous if you're wrong, but if you doubt yourself in these high pressure situations, I think it's even more difficult to win. So you kind of just have to, you know, be confident in your game and your abilities. And, you know, I recognize like it's gotten me this far. Like this is not the time to question what I have relied on my entire career. So I knew it was risky, but I was never really in doubt of my decision. And I was comfortable knowing that if I was wrong, then I was wrong. I can't be 100% accurate all the time, you know, but if I know that I'm more likely than not to be correct, I'm, I'm going to go with, with what I feel is the best play. So I, I shoved with not a ton of fold equity and, and got the fold. And when I saw it on replay that he didn't have anything, I, I was really, it made me feel really reassured that I was on the right path on, on how to play and how to continue to play. There are so many interesting things in that. You said that when he was thinking, you felt like you could read his mind, that you could like read what he was thinking. Give me some more insight into how that happens. You know, I think some people are more in tune to this than others, but there's certain like looks in people's eyes where you can kind of narrow down certain thoughts. I don't really know exactly how to describe it, but it's just like reading people. I think in general, like outside of poker, You know, if you're with somebody and you catch on like something's off, you know, or like someone says something and their face or their eyes or their expression say something else that, you know, when you see that discrepancy, there's a lot of things that autonomically your body can't hide. And so if you can pick up on those things, then you have an advantage because what someone's trying to portray or tell you um, when that contradicts those things, you know, it's easy to pick up on once you notice like, okay, this doesn't make sense. Why doesn't this make sense? Because those things don't align. And if those things don't align, then something's off. And so you pick up on those things, you know, as a lawyer, you kind of, it's an important skill as well, right? Like you have to figure out if your client's lying to you or if, you know, someone you're deposing isn't being truthful or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So when you pick up on those things, which are real tangible things, you have a huge advantage over people who don't do those things. And I will be honest and say there's been multiple instances where I've picked up these exact same reads and been completely wrong. It's always person dependent. So there's often times where people are aware of the micro expressions they're giving off. And so they give off false reads. I've fallen for that a few times. 
Um, and you kind of have to learn from it. So I knew that was a possibility that he could actually be strong and he could be like fake hesitating to make me think that he's weak. A lot of players do that. So I don't want to say, oh, this is like a foolproof way to figure out someone's bluffing you or not. It's, it's not foolproof and there's zero chance it ever will be. But I think the chances of him doing that were a lot less likely than him actually just being nervous. You know, like no matter how good of a poker player you are, if you're taking a line like that, that's not something the the charts are telling you to do, you know, so he's kind of going off off the beaten path. And so I had to do the same thing. And um, he ended up having 10-7 offsuit with just a seven of hearts. You didn't have the king of hearts. How did you feel immediately when he, I think he snap folded, right? He just instantly. Yeah, he folded pretty quickly. So I guess it didn't really give me a chance to doubt myself, but I felt like a huge, I mean, that was such a big hand for me because I was already short stacked to begin the hand. So it made me feel really great. And it gave me a lot more confidence. I already had confidence going into this. You know, there's some hands leading up to this day, you know, on day three and day four, there were some big bots of mine that I had kind of utilized the same skill in the sense of, you know, taking myself outside of just the binary aspect of the hand and trying to use as much information as I could. There was a hand, I think, the end of day four against another, like I had seen him before, but I don't know his name, but it was this huge hand. It was at the end of the day. And I feel like a lot of people can exploit like the last hour to 30 minutes because people get so fatigued in day three, four, and five at the end of the day that if you know that you can kind of exploit just in general, like the general population of the table to chip up at the end. Um, It's obviously higher variance, but I see a lot of people do it. I've done it before. And so this guy, I think the mistake he made was, you know, he had set up this pattern of raising preflop, betting the flop, betting the turn fairly big, you know, 60% pot, and then just jamming river, regardless of the size of the pot, you know, it'd be like pot to 2x pot. And it was so aggressive that people just didn't want to get involved with him in a hand. Well, in my eyes, I saw this as a huge opportunity for me. I'm like, I know this is going to be high variance, but I have a spot here that he's kind of blindly doing the same strategy with every single hand. So I told myself, if I get in a spot with him, regardless of my hand strength, I'm going to go with it. And so he raised, I think, like, you know, cut off. I had like Jack eight off or King eight. I don't, I don't remember some not very good hand. I, I called just to get in this spot with him and I hit like second or third. It was like third pair by the river. And he did, he just bet that shoved and it was for like a $5 million. It was like the most insane thing ever. And I was so nervous, but I'm like, you know what? I'm sticking to my guns. He looked so nervous and I ended up going with it and I won this like massive pot. And that's actually how I got the nickname machine gun kelly because the the dealer there was like so everyone at the table didn't know what to say and the dealer's like your new nickname's machine gun kelly and we all just laughed and i felt bad because the guy got stacked and he's like cut his head down and walks out and i just you know it's hands like that that you're like this feels amazing and you really don't get that feeling if you're just playing by the charts you know so that's what you play poker for, for feelings like that. Now, you say a lot of people joke that the King-8 offsuit hand was a, was a bluff, but 
you felt he had nothing, so you jammed all in, um, and he snap folded. Uh, did you consider like calling, or would that just be too risky with his like, even if he had nothing, just potential flush and straight draws, and you know, just the six outs of having live cards. Given the strength of my hand, calling, I think, was the worst option for me. So if I didn't shove there, I'd just give it to him and kind of concede, which in spots like that, sometimes you kind of have to just let them bully you. You know, I think it was like Daniel Negreanu or someone who said, it's okay to be bluffed. You know, like you're going to get bluffed. And if you're a good player, you have to kind of accept that. And so I was you know, vacillating between this idea, like, I know he's going, he's bluffing me, or I feel like I know he's bluffing me. Do I let it go? Or is this the opportunity to maximize on, you know, given the little extraneous information I picked up on, I decided to just go with it. But yeah, calling really wasn't, I think it just gets you're too into the weeds at that point. So you had this other hand with like the jack eight off and then this hand with the king eight off. And those were like the two most memorable ones you would say of the 2018. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, it was a wild ride. I'm sure there's a lot of other hands in between, but it kind of just blurs together. When you're playing so much poker, it's like, you know, you're at day six and I'm like, I can't remember what I did yesterday. You know, it kind of, I try to stay so focused in the moment that you kind of lose sight of what happened prior. And that happens to me a lot. But, you know, I think there's benefits to remembering and there's benefits to forgetting. So Um, You know, there's certain hands that stick out in my mind, but a lot of them just kind of blend together, unfortunately. I think that's really true, though, because if you um, kind of like keep all the details of these hands spinning around your head, then you're going to actually be really exhausted by the end of the day. There's a lot of people who do that and more power to them. But I mean, we were talking about this king eight hand before and I still had forgotten some details. So I know some people who know like the exact count chip count they had pre-flop and their exact bet size on the flop and I'm just not one of those people I know what you mean like yeah some people have like a photographic memory and then I guess they don't get as exhausted so you ended up in 50th in this event and you you talked in other interviews about how coming 29th in the 2015 WSOP was actually even though it was an incredible result was actually really disappointing because once you got that far you were you know hoping to win or come close to winning what was the feeling like in 2018 when I saw an interview with you in poker news it seemed like you were like much more happy with the finale yeah I feel like I was just prepared mentally for whatever result took place you know after my deep run in 2015 I spent a lot of time playing poker and realized that you know only one person can win so everyone's going to be disappointed. And if you focus on that, it makes the experience not enjoyable than focusing on how far you've come and the experience you've made. And, and to go through the 2015 run and then to hear people say like, Oh, you're, you know, you're not, and even to believe that I was never going to be in that spot again, or have that opportunity. And then just a few years later to be in the exact same spot was like extremely reassuring that, I can do this. If it's not my time this year, then I'll have opportunities in the future. It's not like, oh, this is a once in a lifetime experience that I felt like in 2015, like I blew it somehow, or, you know, I'm never going to have this opportunity. And I was 28 places away from $8 million instead of being like, well, I just got 50th three years later. 
And I can do this. I can do this in the main event. I can do this in the WPT. I can do this in whatever tournament I enter. And I really believed that at that point, you know, I had had so much success in between as well, you know, that made me feel like it wasn't a pipe dream. You know, it wasn't like I was just some random person entering a tournament and got lucky and got 29, which I, at in 2015, I didn't know. You know, I was like, is this just like really lucky? And I, you know, this is my chance. And I've had a nice run this year and I won GPI female player of the year. And, you know, this is going to be it. I didn't know. And so as I had more experience, I'm like, no, it's not, it's not that. And I have, you know, some confirmation based on my consistency and results. You were the last woman standing in both events and the media always makes a big, um, big deal out of that. How did that affect you? Was it distracting, motivating? You know, in the in 2015, I will say it was intimidating because there were so many people that would come up to me in the halls like, you have to win this. Like, this is going to be so big for poker. And, you know, like, I just felt so much pressure, which I actually enjoyed. But as, you know, I got more experience and more comfortability in the space as a woman in poker, I embraced it a lot more. I felt like I wanted to embrace it in 2015, but I didn't really know how. And now I love being able to represent women in an extremely male-dominated field. I feel like I can relate to a lot of women who are in the same situation as me. You know, it's tough, and I know you can relate to it. Um, There's a lot of hurdles to get over in poker, in any male-dominated aspect of the world. But when you learn how to navigate that, it's very empowering. And so if you can utilize what you know to help and benefit others, it's very powerful. What do you think was like the most moving moment to you in terms of like seeing how women or girls um, react to your success and your skills? You know, I had a lot of messages on Twitter and Instagram just saying like, you know, I started playing poker because of you or, you know, I'm doing this, playing this tournament. And it just makes me so excited that I can influence others to, you know, be ambitious, you know, in that regard. I remember when I first started playing poker, like the first year I went to the WSOP, Lonnie Harwood won her bracelet and I remember he I didn't know her yet but I remember hearing about it and being like that's so cool like there's a girl who's heads up for a bracelet and she's like my age you know like it never really occurred to me that there were women who are doing that you know like I wasn't playing tournaments really yet. I was just kind of playing cash and playing some sit and goes and that I remember being that girl hearing about someone having success and being inspired to do that exact same thing. So then to be in that position and then hear from others saying, you've inspired me to pursue this. You've inspired me to, you know, go to the casino and play against the guys or even like, you know, I've had some people emulate like my style with a backwards hat and sunglasses, which I just love, you know, like I love that women can feel confident, like getting in there and just, trying and and doing well you know I saw a photo of a of a girl I think dressed as you for Halloween (laughs) I I, there's been a lot but it's been you know I had there was um that must have been great 
it's just really sweet and it's flattering and also humbling that you can just be yourself and inspire people to, you know, just do what they want to do. You know, I'm honored and I'm humbled to be in the position I'm in. And I hope that I can continue being an ambassador for women in poker. Where do you think confidence comes from for you? Is it practice? Is it upbringing? Is it like just kind of your natural state? Because to me, working in chess and poker, I feel like confidence is one of the biggest issues for for women in like achieving their full potential. For me, I, I mean, I can only, you know, speak on my experience. But one, I was raised with two brothers and I was always raised to like be tough and be confident and not let anyone like push you around. So inherently, that's kind of in my nature. And I've also always felt like I've been a confident person. I've never really struggled with that. You know, even from like grade school, for example, you know, I was kind of like a nerdy kid and I'd have other people ask me for notes or help them with their homework. And I've always had this perspective of, you know, I can give you every tool that I have and I will still be better than you. And having this confidence, whether it's like inflated or not, I feel like helps you in life. Like I don't need to cheat anyone or have an advantage over everyone. My advantage is innate. And I truly believe that. And I feel like the more people believe in their innate abilities, the more confidence you can inherently have. And I also think that the way you're raised and your circumstances and your experience in life affects that. You know, if you have people who are doubting you or belittling you or telling you you're never good enough, of course, that's going to affect that. Uh, Luckily, I've never had, you know, my parents have always said, you can do anything you want. We support you. You know, the people I surround myself with are supportive people. And I've never had anyone like cut me down to a significant degree, you know, that make me doubt myself, you know, like, obviously, there's people online, or, you know, trolls or whatever that say whatever they want to say, but you can't let that get to you, you know, like everyone has an opinion. And I feel like with any success, whether you're a man or a woman that you're going to have people who who doubt you, and that just kind of comes with the territory. But if you have genuine belief in yourself, you know, for me, I feel like, if it wasn't for poker, if it wasn't for law, that if I lost everything possible, that I could be successful in whatever I chose to do. And I feel like if more people had that, you know, confidence would resonate in their work. Yeah, I agree. I mean, even if it's not always true, it's better to be confident and then fail and figure things out than never try because you lack it. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, it's really a tricky one because also, I think it's good in poker to have some uh, some lack of confidence when you're studying so that you know what you need to work on. And I wondered about that because obviously you've been exposed to all sorts of different poker styles and you mentioned that you don't like the playoff charts. But have you spent a lot of time like studying charts and grids just to kind of see what the other type of player is thinking? And what are your impressions of like this kind of development in poker theory? I do want to touch on that. And I think you make a really good point because, you know, when I say confidence, I don't mean like blind confidence, like I'm the best in the world. And like, you know, no one knows anything. I don't know. Of course, like, I don't think I'm the best in the world. And I don't think that I know everything. I know for a fact, I know very little. 
but it's confidence in, you know, whatever I navigate, I will do the best of my abilities. And that's all I can do. And I feel like when you have that confidence, you can build on that, right? So like when I first started playing poker, I didn't know anything. I just started playing with my family. My brother took me to the casino. I was at Commerce. I made a couple thousand dollars playing like two, three or whatever, one, three. And then that was like, oh, this is fun. I could do this. So I didn't just then blindly start playing poker. I like, you know, read some books and I watched some videos and I tried to figure out what I could do to maximize my earning potential. And I feel like you have to have both, you know? So do I like to play off charts? No. Do I feel like it's necessary to know that information? Yes. So I do study the charts. I do watch the tutorial videos. I do have a subscription to Raise Your Edge and when it wants because I feel like you have to do that. You have to learn what your opponents are doing even if you don't utilize that information. You have to know what the people you're playing against are thinking in a game, you know, like if you know game theory, you know that you have to know what your opponent's thinking. That's like the basis of all everything. They're like almost two different things that are that are related. Yeah, definitely being able to be both types of people. I mean, I totally agree with you that in game um, confidence is so important. And I think that for women just losing yourself in that game flow, it's key and it can be difficult because of the uh, the superficial um, culture that we sometimes have and the famous idea from John Berger that when women act, they're also seeing like a picture of themselves as they're acting, which can really interfere with, um, you know, a clear head and confidence to make the kind of decisions that you're talking about. For sure. I mean, I've done talks on women, you know, gender discrepancy and risk aversion, right? Like, in general, women are so much more risk averse. So, and that, you know, why that is, is such like a entirely bigger topic of discussion, but it really comes down to that, like intimidation or self-doubt or disbelief, you know, like, I feel like men are naturally encouraged to like go out there and get in, you know, take the risks and take the leaps. And if you fall, you'll get up, who cares? Women don't believe that generally, and women aren't taught that generally. So it's like, can I unlearn what I think that I should be doing? Because I know if I use logic and reason and analysis that this is the best decision I can make. You know, like everything else, all these inhibitions are put on that is a distraction. Um, And so I feel like if you can break through that idea and take the same leaps and have that same inhibition to, you know, not focus on, you know, what is wrong with this, but focus on how is this right? I feel like in addition to everything that you're saying about risk aversion, um, because of our like, you know, lacking social net in the United States, a lot of things that women are risk averse might be completely rational, like having less wealth, like insufficient maternity protections. So it might actually be just like logical that they're taking more responsibility for their families and like losing money might just be worse for them than it would be for a man. For sure. But I think there's also, it depends on when I say risk averse, I mean, when you're weighing out, like, does Mm -hmm. the, the risk worth it, right? If it's worth it, there's this study or like some tests that was, you know, testing the general population on like, would you bet X if you 
would win Y? And like the obvious answer is yes, but people don't want to risk the X to get the Y, even though it's like a clear, definite yes. And so I feel like people who lack understanding and how to make these decisions are more tend to be more risk averse because that's inherently what we decide on. Like, well, I don't want to risk because I'm risking, not because it's not worth it or because I can't probability wise, it makes more sense. And I feel like that's kind of the hump. A lot of people, not always women, but more women mm-hmm. than um, kind of have to get over is like just not taking emotion out of it and using just reason and, you know, logic to make decisions in that space. Um, I actually formed a company called Mink and Mindset in 2018, shortly after the main event run. And so I work with various companies to utilize, you know, these skills that I incorporate in poker in the business world. Like, how can I make better decisions without utilizing or being distracted from emotion, which people in general have a difficult time doing. I know that's kind of pegged as a a like issue with women, but it's really not. It's human nature to convolute decision-making with emotion. Um, And I feel like as poker players, we kind of take for granted how much we learn to not do that. You said earlier in the interview that in your practice in law, both now working in gaming and previously in defending, I think it was medical malpractice, right? Mm -hmm. That you had to get really good at knowing when your clients are lying. Um, Why is that important? And like, what are some tips that you've gotten to kind of clue you in when people are lying? It's important for a lot of reasons, but you have to have an honest and open relationship with your client. You can't properly represent someone if you don't know the truth. And it's very common for people to be embarrassed or they cover up certain facts that they don't want you to know. And then if you work on the premise that they're being truthful, and you've spent six months on work, and then you go through discovery, and you find out they're lying, then it's just exponentially more work. So inherently, it's easier if you have all the facts early, you can form a basis for a defense or a prosecution based on those facts, and then proceed forward. You know, as facts change, as time progresses, it makes it extremely more difficult because you're basing a strategy around what you know. So it's really important to have every detail possible and all those details be accurate. It's an important thing. I feel like ways you can find out if people are lying is, you know, consistency, just the ability to read people's body language. You know, certain people get uncomfortable or they're cross their hands. They'll, you know, turn away from you. They'll, they can't make direct eye contact. So there's a lot of aspects of, of kind of this inherent reading ability that some people have and some people don't. In law, we also talk about like the plaintiffs talk about like the lizard brain, which is, you know, your innate subconscious that makes decisions before you have time to really think about it. I would say in like the last 10 years, there's a whole strategy based around tapping into the jury's lizard brain, which is, you know, like, how can I make someone feel something that's going to make them make a decision based on the information I give them? And a lot of that is based around like safety or protection. If I can present this case as you need to make this decision or else the community is not safe, or you need to make this decision because if you don't, then this will happen. 
And it's a very subtle strategy that works extremely well. And so I've studied that a little bit and kind of try to incorporate that into, you know, how can I convey a message without directly conveying that message? And um, it's an artwork for sure, but it's a way that, you know, it's a form of manipulation that you can kind of tap into people's subconscious without them realizing you're manipulating them. That's really fascinating. Can you give me an example? So I guess I'll try to give a poker example, but, you know, I try to convey certain messages by my body language, you know, with, with law, like how I was talking about tapping into the lizard brain, it's, you know, speech, it's, it's how I can convince this person to do something. But with poker, I feel like it has to be more subtle. And so it's like, you know, based on the person and what I know about them, it's like I'll build up a certain experience in the poker table. And then when I'm playing with them, I'll try to subtly give hints at certain things or, you know, do things a certain way to either convey information or get information. I was deep in a 5K once and I I remember it was Joey Weissman, who is actually a friend of mine. But I was in a hand with him and I couldn't tell if he was bluffing or not. I was like really on the fence of doing this, calling or not. And I cut the chips out, like as I was about to call and I tried to make the, you know, movement extremely natural. And when I did that, I like glanced over and looked at him before I put the call in. And he was just like gave so much information. Like he, his face turned red. He was extremely uncomfortable. He like, I actually saw like sweat coming down. He like, his eyes got really darty. And it just was like, you can, you know, extract information by doing things or saying things to elicit a response. And like I said before with the King Eight Hand, like it, it gets tricky. It's not like a black and white. You know, like I've done this before and been completely wrong. I just feel like you have to get creative. You know, I try to use as much extraneous information as I can to make the right call. And were you right that time you called and he was bluffing? Yeah, I was right. I was right. But there's been times where I'm like trying to read the person or I'll cut the, you know, bet out and they'll take a gulp and I call and they just have the nuts. And I'm like, all right, well, that didn't work. All you need to do is be right a little bit more. You don't have to be right every time. Then you would just be um, no fun to play with. It's not like just throw the charts out the window. I feel like you can use both. And it's a matter of like when to use what, you know, like, and that's based on what opponent you're playing. And what came first, your ability to read people in the legal field or your ability to read people in poker? Well, I I played poker before I started practicing law. I was actually in law school. So I would say with poker first. And I remember when I was hired with my first law firm, I did explain to them, like, I play poker. This is something that I do. And I kind of like to have the ability to have a little bit of a flexible schedule. I knew it was kind of a long shot, but they actually saw that as an advantage. I worked with a firm right out of law school that didn't hire anyone without 10 years of experience. So I didn't even consider applying for that job. But what happened was I clerked for a all-female medical malpractice defense firm that rented office from them. And I thought I'd actually work with them. And then they heard so many good things about my work that they wanted to interview me. And when I explained that, you know, I played poker and I had had some success and 
you know, I felt like it was something I'd want to pursue as I was playing, as I was, you know, practicing law that they're like, you know what, we're going to go out on a limb and hire you because we feel like you can bring like a different perspective to our practice. And I feel like I really did that. I was able, so they encouraged me, like, what can you bring to this? They, you know, asked what I thought about things. They asked what my strategies should be and, you know, like settlement conferences. And, you know, as they saw, you know, what I was trying to incorporate, have success, that really made me even more confident that I was like onto something that could be utilized in multiple different verticals. You know, it wasn't just poker skill. And I feel like a lot of poker players can relate that what you learn in poker, you can incorporate in so many different aspects of life that are beneficial to you. And, you know, it's important to look outside of just poker and how I can incorporate this skill set I've learned in every aspect of my life. What is like the, the new frontier for you and like using your poker skills outside the game? I focus a lot of it in law. That's helped me a lot. And recently, you know, I, my 11 year old niece lives with me and I use a lot of poker skills, kind of help raise her. You know, I try to include her in my thought processes for, you know, every decision I make so that she understands, you know, it's more of like a relationship that is a learning experience. Cause I feel like that's the best way to teach someone is by explaining to them, this is why I'm doing this. You know, like when we're watching poker videos, let's say, well, this is my thought process. Let me break down this hand. And I feel like you can incorporate that in child rearing, you know, like this is why I'm doing this. It's for your benefit and X, Y, and Z. And it's really cool to see how much wisdom she's gained from just incorporating those little aspects into you know, helping raise her. Yeah, that's amazing. And so you raise your 11-year-old niece and do you teach her poker as well? I taught her like a little bit of poker, but not too much. She's not very interested. She'd rather play Roblox or Minecraft, which I don't know how to play either, but I guess that's what kids these days are doing. But she definitely has some inherent like competitiveness. And, you know, I told her when you want to learn poker, seriously, we can talk about it. But I think it's important to just let kids be kids. You know, poker is is complicated and it's very in depth. But yeah, she knows she knows the basics. Yeah, I'm sure she likes to watch you. You know, one of the things I really was interested rather to read about you is that you actually have a background in art. You're really interested in studio art and you wanted to get more into that in your career, which ended up going in different directions, which are very absorbing as well. Is there any way which you feel like your passion for creativity is you know, um, satisfied by your poker career? To a certain extent, I have this natural desire to want to do things outside of the norm. Um, And I feel like that does work to my benefit in poker. But yeah, like I, I have a creative artistic side that I feel like is somewhat thwarted by being a lawyer and poker player. I mean, the extent that you can incorporate that is somewhat limited but I will say that during quarantine I have had the chance to like paint a little and draw a little which has been nice I do like have some not regret but I would like to have some space or some outlet where I could express myself more creatively from like an aesthetic standpoint because I feel like the creative aspect of my poker play will always be there that's just part of my skill set the one thing that I would say like 
from an art aspect, like I've always been competitive. So you kind of give and take depending on whatever you do. So I do like the competitive aspect of playing poker. You know, it's like as an adult, I don't play sports. So it's kind of fun to have that aspect. And I think that there's a certain satisfaction. I mean, I feel somewhat bad saying that, but there's just this sweet satisfaction of like beating someone who looks at you like, oh, this innocent, cute little girl. And then you sit down and you just take all their money and you can just see the look on their face. And it just, there's something satisfying about that, that you really don't get anywhere else. Does it still happen to you though, now that you're famous? Definitely not as much. And I will say like, I miss that part of it as being like an unknown female player and going to play cash or playing a tournament and just having, you can just tell that people don't acknowledge your strengths. And honestly, I know a lot of women don't like that, but I love that. I think that's such a great space to be in is to be like doubted and looked over. And I love proving people wrong. I love being in a position where it's like, that was unexpected. So I do miss that a little bit, but it's nice to also come to the table and have respect and have people fear you. I've gone to court before and had people think I was a secretary. So I've, you know, I've I've experienced it in all different aspects and I actually don't mind it. You know, I'd rather be doubted and underrepresented and have like a surprise when I show up. And I don't know, there's just something satisfying about that. So you came really deep in the main twice. We've talked about both of the runs a lot. I, I Were you following the recent online main event where a female player, actually Wenling Gao, came in second place for, for the biggest score ever from a female player? $2.7 million. I did not know that. I actually saw the hand, the last hand that was like aces to a straight. But I didn't know she was a female. That's amazing. I know. I know. I guess it just doesn't get as much press because, of course, it's an online event. And there's that sense that people wanted to see a woman there at that televised ESPN table. But it's still pretty cool, right? It's amazing. I mean, if I was more comfortable in an online setting, I think I would have played. But I just, I wasn't excited about it. And I felt like, I don't know when the next time is that, I mean, hopefully the the main event, the World Series goes next summer. But it's like, you know, when's the next time I'm going to not play poker over this summer? So I kind of wanted to just take a step back and like enjoy not being a part of it. But I do think that's amazing that a woman went so deep. I didn't know that. It's really incredible. And maybe that means that, it, um, you know, now that the streak of women not making the final table has been broken, even if it hasn't been in the live one, that... uh you know, that will inspire um, more women to to play whenever it comes back. And what is the company? Is that the Minkin Enterprises? Uh, Minkin Mindset? No, that's kind of on pause because, you know, people aren't really doing uh, consulting right now. But I have a company that I'm working with, a startup company called Seeker. And we're a quote comparison website and app. So hopefully that'll launch in the next three to six months. And I'm looking forward to sharing it with everybody. So it's been really just a great experience. I'm also working with my boyfriend's foundation. He helps underprivileged kids have access and opportunities to sports. So we're working on fundraising for that as well, which has been really great. Um, I wanted to start my own nonprofit 
And it's just such an undertaking. So I've been working with him. I'm on the board for his foundation. It's been some exciting times for sure. Wow, you sound so busy. What's the foundation called? It's Landon Lucas Foundation. Um, We're working on this Sports for Life, just fundraising event where we're trying to raise money. We're trying to create individual funds to help people raise money for their communities. It's been an exciting journey to just be able to help people who need help. You sound like you're doing a great job with all the things that you're doing. And I'm not surprised you don't have time for online poker, nonprofit board, startup and painting. (laughs) You're doing so much, Kelly. So I really extra appreciate you coming to talk to me about this epic hand with King Aid offsuit. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. I love the podcast. I hope you get all the hands on the podcast and I look forward to watching more. Thank you so much. And we can find her at The Illist on Twitter. That one is two L's. And then Instagram, The Illist with three L's, right? Yes. <laughs> well, you'll find her though. Just just look up Kelly Minkin. And is there anywhere else you want us to, to look for you? Or are those, those the two main places you're going to keep us updated on your startup and everything else that's happening? Hopefully I'll see you guys soon when things get back to the real felt instead of the virtual felt. And start crushing people again with uh, the King 8 offsuit re-raise. Let's hope there's more of that. Well, I'll, I'll close again with what I said in the intro. Don't be the best. Be the only Kelly Minkin on King 8 offsuit on the grid. Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. Cheap tricks up my sleeve Yeah, I got talent You won't see me, see me stunting No, never, never stagger Believe it, I'm the real thing